0: Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Super Prime UK with your Super Prime valuation specialist myself Rob Cohen,
1: myself James Wild.
0: Today super excited we have a special guest. We have Michael Dean from Avamore Capital joining us. Very excited. Great track record, so much going on in his life that he's going to be sharing with us. Not going to give too much away. Stay with us. He's going to be sharing all um first, we'll start with you, James, and uh, give everyone the update of what's been happening.
1: Thanks, Rob. Uh, so, the market seems to be uh, very much easing into 2024. Uh, just in terms of some of the, uh, the data we've seen so far, a very positive sale of the week last week, Rob, uh, just a uh, 19 million or so uh, sale up in N2, Willington Roads. Uh, some, so, some good positivity there for the super prime market. Uh, new instructions last week, highest of the year so far, 3.77, uh, which is again some uh, some sort of shoots of positivity. Uh, under offers, 100 uh, 90, so a, a quite a good pipeline there um, the sold figures are 110 for last week. Um, we're a little bit behind the, the average of what we saw last year. Uh, but like I said, we're sort of, um, sort of really easing into 2024 so far in terms of the, uh, the, the sold figures, which we're seeing there.
0: Yeah, I think, love Winnington. A lot of people ask us in the super prime world, is Winnington the new bishops? And I think from a living perspective, um, it's more of a practical road to live in than the busy thorough through of uh, of, yeah.
1: of bishops. I, I think you, you get sort of, in, in terms of, sort of the, the vast size, you'll get slightly smaller houses on Winnington uh, than the Bishop's Avenue. However, in terms of the, uh, the end users and the occupiers, I think um, they're more, um, in terms of more typical owned uh, end users, whereby they're sort of lived in for a higher proportion of the year. It's, it's a quieter road. It might might not have the same um, uh, synonymous uh, high value nature that the Bishop's Avenue. Uh, but in terms of uh, super prime, there's still some very large uh, houses on that particular road, number of detached properties, uh, basements, large gardens. So it really appeals to the ultra high net worth market still.
0: Yeah, I'm, I've said it on the show on numerous occasions, but I think Avenue Road is the 2024 version of the 1980s Bishops Avenue and Avenue Road is where the, the super home for the ultra high net worth is now being built and delivered and that's a, a shift change in, let's call it semi-North London uh, ultra high net worth living.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think over the last like, 10 years or so, there's been some of the consulates which have been uh, sort of sold off or, or converted on the street as well. You have the big uh, sort of detached villas there. And also the, the main thing is, is the plot size and the gardens on Avenue Road. Uh, you, you just get those executive homes, gated driveways, ticks a lot of boxes for uh, the ultra high net worths and overseas buyers, that, those sort of price points. So w- welcome, Michael, to the show. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, as well as uh, being heavily involved with and being one of the co-founders of uh, Avermore Capital, you also uh, have your own podcast, The, uh, the Property Funder, as, as well. So welcome, Michael. Thanks. Thanks both. Thanks for
2: having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here
1: and uh, excited to have the conversation. Great, right. so uh, let's start off. I was just going to sort of start uh, with the sort of Avonmore Capital side. So, uh, can you give us a, just a, a brief introduction of Avonmore Capital uh, and how it all started uh, and how, it, how the business has, has evolved? Uh, right,
2: well, I'll start. I'll start maybe in the beginning, uh, <laughs> beginning of my career, and I sort of uh, skip on. So, I'm, at, uh, I'm also actually a, a trained surveyor uh, for my sins. I uh, yeah. started out in in commercial agency in Cushman and Wakefield uh, 20 years ago. Uh, sort of feels like yesterday, but there you go. Um, and then around the time of Lehman Brothers, I ended up working in a, a private equity shop and um, spent most of the two and a half years that I was there restructuring uh, the debt on the investments that we had and also uh, procured uh, some speculative development finance for a, what turned out to be a 210 million GDV scheme in Victoria, uh, which is a mixture mm. of offices and resi. I ended up working uh, with my father-in-law after I left that uh, after I left there um, basically it was a bit of a, a lifestyle decision and um, helped my father-in-law set up his family office we helped him set uh, exit his uh, his main business as well which was a healthcare business um, and we reinvested that into real estate Um around 2014 2015 we were fully invested in in, in real estate uh, direct real estate um, and so I had a bit of time on my hands and, and I ended up doing um, I suppose some consultancy work with some developers who were looking to raise a bit of capital, raise a bit of equity, um, and as part of that, I ended up stumbling across Zaher, uh, co-founder of Avermore, who'd just left Goldman. He put some money into some some bridge deals uh, through some, I suppose some some of the platforms that were ex- existent at the time, um, and I was trying to persuade him to put some money into uh, basically a second charge of, for uh, one of the one of my clients uh, who was looking to raise some funding. Uh, and he was pretty adamant that he wanted me to invest with him. Uh, we started talking about how we saw our investment, how we saw the world, um, and then that's sort of how Avermore was born. And uh, alongside Zahair, we had Nick Petkov, who was working for my family office at the time, uh, and we were joined by uh, Amit Majithia about six uh, six months later. And so uh, that was the, sort of the origin of of Avermore. Of uh, we, we got off to a pretty good start uh, within four weeks of us, uh, of us setting the business up, and incorporating the business. Uh, we actually did our first loan, which is a, um, to an existing contact existing client of, of mine who was looking for a bridge loan, and uh, we, we got funding from a, a family office to uh, to fund that. Uh, but then Zaha and I essentially were funding the bulk of Arammore's loans for about two to two and a half years. Uh, and then we started to bring in uh, high net worth capital to co-invest alongside us in, in club deals. Um, we, we saw a massive gap in the market. Um, in not so much in bridging but I think kind of more heavy heavy refurbs and then into ground up development around 2015 2016 uh, you could see that there was a there was a lot of money coming into bridging I think it was the sort of the start of bridging becoming more interestri- institutionally interesting interestu- sorry institutionally more acceptable um, and so uh, and on top of that uh, you could get one percent a month uh, as a from a high net worth that the, you know, at 70 LTV, that was a very compelling prospect uh, as an investor into that sort of space. Um, and so very quickly, bridging rates started to go down, especially once you put institutional money into the mix, which obviously had a much lower cost of capital, mm-hmm. considering that the base rate at the time was what, 50 basis points, uh, obviously compared to the north of five that we experience today. Um, so we saw a big opportunity in the development space. And so we, we, got, we were very active in ground up development uh, working particularly with early stage developers who, you know, again, another another arena where we felt that there was an underserved market. Uh, and so accordingly, we had an opportunity to fund early stage developers, less experienced developers and help them get on their way um, and build their track records up so that, you know, they might be eligible to work with a close brothers or someone who's a bit more you know, someone who, who would be more open to working with a, a more experienced developer uh, and maybe be a bit cheaper. Um, after about two and a half, three years, we started to attract attention from institutional capital, and we were approached by a couple of US credit funds, uh, and they wanted to to fund our, our loans. and We've been working with them ever since, and we've done the best part of six or seven hundred million pounds worth of lending with, between our institutional credit funds uh, and um, you know and and I suppose the third party private families. Um, Aivmor's really, yeah. really as a as a business is a. It's a development lender that does some bridging so about 25 percent of our of our, our activity on any given year is about is bridging but that typically isn't your kind of your rooftop bridging you know two up two down semi detached you know chimney pots in greater manchester you know out, out of london typically it will be a bridging against a bungalow that developer wants to get planning on to put a couple of semis on there or put nine apartments or whatever, or alternatively, it's a, a development yeah. exit. Um, but our, our, our single USP product, because I know this is a question yeah. you wanted to ask, um, is around uh, is around park complete development. So we, we, we came up with the term finish and exit, the rest of the market then stole it. Um, <laughs> but ultimately, the, fin- the, the finish and exit that the rest of the market sells is effectively it's a refurb of a you know nearly finished development. For us, part complete development is, starts with you know, it's like the sort of golden brick. You know, if, if, you, if, you're, if you're in the ground or you're just coming out the ground, that for us constitutes a, a, a part complete development. And so we've done, it's probably our, it's, it's probably our, our most successful product in terms of profitability. Yeah. Um, and it, probably our biggest loans that we've ever done have always been in, in that part combe, complete development space. And it remains, it remains for me my, my proud, the proudest product for me that we offer. Uh, and for me, also the best product that we offer as well.
1: Yeah, and just in terms of your, your background, you mentioned about being uh, initially a surveyor uh, and having some property ex- expertise, uh, expertise in uh, private equity and consulting. Uh, has that helped you in terms of your, uh, your own expertise or looking in and uh, enabled you in the, in the early days to have your own sort of uh, mind from maybe a, a deal perspective and a, and a credit risk perspective?
2: I think, we, well, I think one of the benefits when we set up even more was that um, we've we ha- we had the benefit of being outsiders, so we never had the I suppose what I think is the baggage that comes with this is how we this is how it's always done. So we've always taken a slightly different approach um, where we can do to in in order to be able to um, find innovative and and, and new ways of, of finding solutions for clients and bo- for brokers and borrowers, um, and so we. we with that in mind i think uh, i think sometimes our our ability to a- engineer deals can go a little bit too f- could go a little bit too far but for the most part you know if, if a broker has a, a deal that is challenging or complex we've always been able to rise to the challenge you know mm. we were doing we were lending against corporate transactions as early as 2016 2017 um, deals that you know for a million or a million and a half purchase for most people, you, you, no one in their right mind should be doing a corporate purchase at that sort of level. The, the amount stamp duty savings is yeah. worth the cost of the, of the legals, frankly. Yeah. But we were we were able to do that. We were able to uh, we were able to do that for for clients. And I think that that ability to find yeah. solutions and be innovative, to be able to apply that higher standard of professionalism, that I think is now mainstream and widespread within the the specialist finance arena but wasn't really there 6 or 678 years ago it wasn't there as you know as it wasn't as prevalent anyway yeah. so our ability to apply that degree of sophistication um, definitely gave us an edge
1: yeah so definitely in terms of your innovation and strong internal expertise has really sort of helped to uh, consolidate some of those uh, some of those products um, I know you mentioned about your uh, Finish and Exit uh, product being your your most popular I'm gonna to have to correct you though it's part complete now. We we don't use Finish and Exit. Okay. We we called it we rebranded it
2: part complete because everyone because you know unfortunately the thing about finance is there's no there's there's no real intellectual property. You can't you can't patent these things or trademark them. So we had to we had to rebrand it part complete.
0: Is it fair to say, just in general terms, a uh, a bridge exit is is the less riskier end of development finance purely because uh, you're virtually there and done with most of the build costs?
2: You mean from a part-complete standpoint, or yeah. I think the part-complete development product products that are offered by our peers, the, the finish exits, you know, the fake finish exits, I would call them, um, they are effectively bridges. I mean, that's what they are. They, they are, and it's ultimately driven by the risk appetite the funding lines that, that sit behind those sit behind those lenders who aren't. They're not development lenders, they don't, understand the development, they don't understand development risk and neither do their funding lines have appetite for that. So they really, they're, they're, their approach is if the developer doesn't finish this, am I at 80 LTV against what I've got today? That's kind of I think the mindset that they've got and that's how they're able to get comfortable with it. But when it's half built, they can't do that. If it's not wind and water type, for example, they just can't get their heads around it. and So they, they back off, they shy away from it because I don't because I think they' they're just not, they're just not geared up to deal yeah. with, with, uh, with approaching the credit risk on subsequent drawdowns.
0: I think from a liquidity perspective, um, anyone understands that to exit a development scheme that is maybe far from completion is the least liquid position generally you could possibly find yourself in on a, on a lend. And that's always the biggest challenge with the development finance.
2: I think that's hundred percent right, because you've got to think about your pool of buyers um, your pool of buyers at the beginning of, you know, when, when a development site hasn't been started is anyone who would do that development The pool of buyers at the end is your end user, which is obviously much greater or much larger market. There are very few developers who want to step into some, to another developer's shoes when the, when the building's half built. So, and look, we've we're experience, we've experienced it a couple of times at the moment with stuff that's on our books where our borrower has not performed and we have to, we're effectively having to manage the situation out. Now we've got good enough in-house expertise. Um, you know, our new director of credit, Matt Foley, who's joined us from Octopus, you know, he's got a lot of experience in that, in that arena, very comfortable making, I guess, quote unquote, difficult decisions. Yeah. Um, and I guess that, I guess that's kind of in our minds where we earn our, earn our corn in this difficult market. So how do we sell ourselves to, say, future funders and also prove ourselves to our existing funders? It's our ability to manage out these difficult situations to the extent that we're now taking over loans for our existing funding lines from, from effectively failed lenders. So lenders who, who our, fund, our funders have backed, who have effectively failed, and we're having to 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 help fix that situation. That's yeah. a great
0: opportunity for us. After the show, we've got a really good debt recovery uh, arm that works very closely with lenders. So off off camera, happy to discuss that further. Okay,
1: brilliant. <laughs> in in terms of the, the the lending policy, from more of a. Um, a mainstream perspective, it's become a lot more stringent with sort of uh, the likes of warranties, professional consultant certificates uh, and the like, just to facilitate uh, the, the sort of end product mortgages to the to the, the, the ultimate buyers, the end users. Has uh, that sort of required any sort of close management in, internally, uh, preferred warranty providers or PCCs? Um, we have
2: a very close relationship with um, J3 Advisory. Uh, I would say close relationship by um, Jack Bristow, is a, is a close personal friend and I've provided him with a lot of mentorship. And I, I wouldn't say he's given me mentorship, but I certainly get a lot of inspiration and excitement mm. talking to him. So I think from, the, from the, the warranty perspective, if we ever have any question marks around a development or, or around a deal that we're looking to get into, whether it's part complete or at the beginning, um, you know, we typically will, Jack will get a phone call from one of the team, um, to, you know, to pick his brain on, on things. And, you know, he can give pointers. Likewise, um, you know, likewise, we have a, we'll speak to solicitors who are independent of, of our panel, um, who, and ask them. So for example, David Hirschhorn at Jolson, who, it doesn't necessarily do much on the lending side for Avermore, but does a lot for me personally. Um, say for our family office, mm. um, I'll speak to David or his colleague, Michael Friend, and I'll say, look, um, Kind of just run you through the situation. What do we need to do here? What are we missing? What, what, you know, what, what would you think is important? What's a, you know, what's a high street conveyancer going to need to see to be able to sign this off for their end user and their end user's mor- uh, mortgagee? And that, those are the kind yeah. of things that we're doing. But yeah. it's we won't we're not we don't have a checklist necessarily. We have, we have to, I think you have to apply case by case.
1: Yeah. Um, so. approach very bespoke approach and um, great and then in terms of uh, you, you've mentioned about your uh, development lending products in, in terms of the uh, ground up development it's maybe not your uh, your core area but it, but it's something that you sort of regularly get involved with I think that's I think to say it's not
2: our core area is probably is probably not entirely accurate yeah I think it' it would we would very much like it to be at the front and center and our biggest product of the of the of the mall that we offer I mean I would say i actually I would maybe slightly disagree with myself there but I would say I much prefer part complete just because I think it's I, I just think it's such a great product because you you get reward you get rewarded with development returns but you're really not taking full degree of development risk because the say of say the groundworks risk is taken yeah notwithstanding that though that that size of addressable market versus the size of the development market as a whole, I think, typically there's about twenty-four billion of development lending that goes on in the UK every year. There's about somewhere between five and six billion of non-regulated bridge lending, by comparison. So for us, the the attraction to go into d- development or be for development to be our most dominant product is a hundred percent there. Mm. So we we're doing ground-up deals month in, month out. Um, We'd very much like to do more, uh, more than we currently are. I mean, there are issues at the moment with, understandably, if you are a developer right now, your appetite for doing ground up development, uh, especially last year with, you know, I suppose it's sort of what you call it, quadruple whammy of land value's not really moving, your bill costs going up, GDV's going down, sales, sales velocity going, going down. Um, Why, why, why would you start a ground up development last year if you didn't have to, it's, it, it just doesn't make it just doesn't make any sense. But I think in the long run, that's very much where we want to be going as a business. And I think the, the challenges that we and many of our, in our market are facing is that ground up development finance uh, ground up development lenders want to lend, but we're having restrictions imposed on us by our funding partners who have a slightly different set of priorities, and so they you know they, they are more cautious. In their outlook at the moment, and they, want, and they want to maybe hold things back. Now, my message to them would be: I actually think right now is going to be a really good time you're to, to be lending into ground up development because I think you're going to have some great. It's going to be a great vintage, if you know, to use a sort of private equity expression, because I feel like build costs are now starting to moderate, if not go into a, a slight decline. Okay, land prices are starting to soften a bit, but not, not massively. But let's not worry about that. But I think the lack of new supply that's coming through means that, and you know, we can talk about interest rates as well. Mm. I, think the, I think interest rates starting to soften. I, I know we've had a bit of a hiatus on that for the last six to eight weeks um, since the start of the new year. But I think in the long run, or the medium term, sorry, I think interest rates will start to soften. And so I think what you'll find is that anyone who's sticking a spade in the ground right now, 18 months from now, when you come to sell those units, you're going to be, you're going to be very happy with the outcome, it's going yeah. to be a great performance for you as a developer and therefore as a development lender, that feels like this is a, this is a bit of a, a green light signal for me to be active yeah. in that space. But I think it takes time for that to filter through to the, fund, to, to the funders, the people that fund lenders, for them to sort of get on board with that. And there's also kind of other you know, competing factors. You know, We're funded by American funds. They look at what's going on in the States we could also see a big change as well in that as soon as the funding market in the States comes back to life, which it's starting to, there's more competition for capital over there. So they then need to find places to deploy the capital so that more money will come to the UK as a consequence, because obviously the UK is still seen as a very attractive place to be deploying capital into the real estate debt space.
0: Just to add another point, I agree with your outlook, and um, I'm also uh, relatively positive. Just- just the challenge in your space is with the developers, the cost of development finance and borrowing because of what the debt markets have seen over the last 12 to 24 months is another key variable that's eating away at profit margins. And they do need to see that change or for them to get more comfortable with the variables going in a positive direction before, as you, as you said, putting that spade into the ground.
2: I would challenge that in the sense that yes we've obviously seen a big rise in the cost of development finance but the but your finance cost as a proportion of your total costs as a developer are still a re, it's a, still a relatively small proportion of your total costs when you're a developer. So I think as a as a consequence of that yes it feeds into it but I don't think the cost of development finance moves the needle for you know 80% plus of all developers as to whether they Go ahead with a scheme or not if you're reliant on eight percent or seven percent or six percent cost of finance for your development finance as a developer you've probably got bigger problems because you've not managed your construction costs or you're paying too much for that that, that, that that's that's ultimately the way i would i would see it
1: I it. Great. Thanks, Michael. And then just, just in terms of the, uh, the background of some of your uh, sort of de- developer clients, is, is a lot of the land something some that they've uh, either land banked over a long period of time, or is it something uh, that they're sort of a, a turnkey development site which they're acquiring? Um, I think it very much,
2: it very much varies from, mm. from developer client to developer client. Um, for the most part, I would say that they're, they're developers that, have, that are just picking up a ticket. Yeah, you know, they've, they've, they've been able to source a site off-market, you know, off-market, we all know what that means, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Uh, they've, they've been able to source a site that, they, that they've been able to access, it's got consent, and they're, they're just stepping into someone else's consent, buying the land of someone that's, that's done the work on the planning side. Having said that, though, probably our most successful client, is a chap called Mihir Neta. Um I had him, again, had him on the podcast, a very interesting guy. Um, he, he used to be a planner. Uh, so he, he, started out as a planner in a local authority moon and then started moonlight the second half of the week, cause he was working flexi time, um, advising clients. Then he started to, you know, buy his own sites and get planning and trade them on. And then he moved into development. And so we've done, you know, approaching 50 million pounds worth of lending with him, just him alone. Um, and he, you know, he's, he's securing the sites well in advance, he's either Getting them on options or he's or he's buying the buying the sites unconditionally mainly on options obviously making a bit of a, a nice spread on yeah on the land on purchase because obviously what it's worth and what he's what he's contracted to pay for it there's obviously a, a bit of separation there and then he's building them building the sites out and then he's retaining them so so you do have people who of of that nature who, who do that that sort of thing um but i'd say for the most part most of our clients yeah. are are people who are buying yeah. sites
1: with content? Um, yeah, that's it. I think with, with the developer clients, it's those which sort of know the process, have the expertise, know when they can upscale any planning, and obviously those which can obviously uh, d- deliver uh, the housing. That that's the real sort of sweet spot, as they've got sort of a full spectrum of, of services that they can work up uh, different different styles of developments, whether it be the, the turnkey, have a have a land bank, uh, and have the full spectrum. Um, just taking a step back for anyone. Uh, that's listening and maybe isn't familiar with the term ground-up development? I, I don't know if we can just explain a little bit more about some of the uh, nuances be, between the, those products. Of course, I mean, put simply, ground-up development is, it is
2: essentially when you've got, well, it can either be a brownfield site or a greenfield site. A brownfield site is a site that's been built on before. A greenfield site is essentially, it's a, it's a you know you could call it a field, for example. you know. Um, it's effectively virgin land that's never been built on before, but the key thing there is that a um, key distinction between ground up and say a heavy refurb is a heavy refurb might be you have an existing structure which you're extending or, or converting um, to some to some extent, whereas uh, and you could be you could have new build components to it, so parts of that existing structure which have Land that surrounds it, and then you're building on that. That would not really be ground-up development. That's still what we would classify as heavy refurb. Whereas ground-up development would be, you have you have a site, you clear it, you, you you put the foundations in place, you put the superstructure on on it, and then you know you put your roof, your windows, you do your first fix, your second fix, um, and then you know you do you do your, your cat A, your cat B, and then and you put it on your landscaping, you put it on the market. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the, I suppose, the key distinction. I don't know if that's.
1: Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's brilliant. Well enough for you. No, I think that, that explains to everyone that, that maybe it isn't as, as familiar with this sector. Um, just in terms of uh, looking forward now to, to the rest of the year uh, 2024, is there any new lending products coming online or any sort of growth areas which you're really targeting?
2: I think the, the key areas of growth that we want to be focused on is, is very much just doing more in the ground up space. Um, we announced second half of last year that we'll be doing um, purpose-built student accommodation or PBSA. Um, Some people don't quite know what that is, but uh, PBSA. Um, But we're not going to be doing ground up in PBSA space at the moment. Um, Funding lines don't have appetite for it, but also we think that there's a good niche in the market for us to exploit there where um, we're looking at um, repurposing, I suppose, first-generation student accommodation Mm. um, and bring that back in, you know, bring that up to modern standards or taking, say, you know, commercial buildings, particularly in, you know, locations in the north where perhaps C3 residential doesn't have the doesn't generate the cap values per square foot that, say, student accommodation will. So we'll be working with developers to uh, well, develop developer operators in the PBSA space to help them convert those, those buildings into
1: yeah, USA. It's, it's definitely a space that's evolved the last 10 or 15 years where my universities aren't so uh, tied to producing uh, their own in-house accommodation, have gone into the, the private sector for, for companies to uh, be able to facilitate a more sort of um, higher spec student accommodation yeah. and obviously uh, there's been an uptake in the students that were willing to, to, to pay for that which creates the market. Yeah.
0: We had the CEO of the Association of Short-Term Lenders, uh, Vic Janos, which I know you're a, a proud member of. And he was sharing with us um, strong data from 2023 of one of the best performing years in the short-term lending space and how he very much expected that trend to continue into 2024. Do you have the same outlook?
2: Well, first of all, I wouldn't share his enthusiasm for 2023 i think some of the i'm always i'm I'm maybe a bit skeptical of the data because you know we saw our new origination volumes last year drop not you know we're still it was still our third best year on record but we still but notwithstanding that we still saw a drop in our new originations um how uh, i think one of the challenges we have is that we don't really know what, we don't know what other, members are, what other members are presenting to the ASTL as far as their data is concerned, and what they classify as, as qualifying and not. So I, I always find that a little bit difficult.
0: Um, I mean, sorry to interrupt. When the retail lending market is so challenging, um, like we saw last year, and the gap between short-term lending and mainstream retail lending, has probably come down to its n- narrowest point that I can remember, then it does make sense that more people would come into the short-term lending space whilst there's so much volatility, which we saw last year with interest rates and the product that is available on the mainstream market there. That seems to make sense from from my perspective.
2: I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I think that, that you, we, we still saw a lot less of it than you than than one might have expected. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably you know I think what we what we start what we do see is that most people who were in the buy, you know who, let's say if you're a buy to let investor and you're coming off a you know you're three percent you're three and a half percent and now you're staring a seven percent down the barrel or you could go to a bridge lender at I don't know, eight nine ten percent. I mean eight last year if you got eight last year well well done but I mean you know nine ten. And and then some. But the difference is of course that there's no ERC. And if you've got you know, if you're getting your crisp wall out and you think, okay, well, you know, interest rates are going interest rates are gonna start falling and you know, maybe I'll be able to get a maybe not a three and a half, but maybe a four and a half in twelve months time, I'll sit on this slightly more expensive rate, but I'm not locked in for, I don't know, five years at seven or six and a half, or I'm paying six, but I'm paying a five percent product fee. Yeah. Um or you know something crazy like that. So you think you'd think that that would would be the case, but still, notwithstanding, it, and we did see some of it, it. We didn't see anywhere near as much as we would have expected to of that for this year, in terms of enthusiasm and and, and positive expectations. Um, I think we will see. I, I, I think I think don't think Vic's wrong to be optimistic about this year, but my view will be that we're more likely to see people return to the the buy to let space and acquiring more assets for private rental. Um, obviously not the amateur investor, but will be the professional investor. Because I think the opportunities are there. Obviously the rental grade is very strong. Um, you know, house prices have been, I mean they haven't created, but they're not, you know, mm. they're, they're kind of a bit anemic. Um, but yields are more attractive. So I think you'll start to see people coming back into the sector. But I think it's very much reliant on interest rates for term products being at levels where there is, you know, there is a, a positive yield gap between the interest rates, well, between the yield on the property and the the interest rates payable uh, to to you know a term lender. Um, when that comes back, because you know, if you're buying a property for refurb, you know, the BR you know, what BRR, how many R's you want to put on it, but you know, build, uh, build, buy, refinance, uh, buy, refurb, refinance, um, operator. And you might be able to buy the property at an attractive price. You might be able to do the refurb, but if you can't refinance it at a price that, that gives you that positive you would spread and enables you to take your initial capital out of that property. And that's that's been the other issue obviously has been leverage. And the lev- part of the leverage is obviously is something that's driven by the if you've got higher interest rates, you've then got your you know, your ICR covenants. So if your ICR covenant is busted at, I don't know, 75, 80, 85, whatever you were able to get before, and now you're having to be at a lower at lower LTV, more of your more of your capital, initial capital stuck in that property in the in the long term. It doesn't work. These you know, these guys, these guys they're, they're churning not they? they're churning all the time. They can't do that. So I think we do need to have, we do need to see a, a, fall, in, a fall in those sort of medium term interest rates to be confident that that sort of bridging, the refurb bridging market, which I think was, a, was carried us the last mm. 13, 14 years, for that to come back.
1: Yeah. And uh, just in terms of what what you mentioned there, the the PBSA, the Purpose Built Student Housing, is that maybe opening up an opportunity to do more uh, residential investment, um, uh, loans and deals, and maybe entering into the the build to rent space? Um, I think build to rent will be a way off because I think there's a,
2: you know, to be able to lend into that market, the dynamics of that market, um, you often often have pension funds that are effectively forward funding, Mm. those uh, forward purchasing or forward funding, those schemes. So... The only way to access to be active in that market from a lending perspective is to sort of be at a slightly awkward ticket size that, the, that those institutions don't really be operating at. Then begs the question: who's your exit to? So it's not that attractive, I think, in that in that uh, in that respect. Um, in terms of residential investment lending, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I I have a very strong personal view as one of the major shareholders in the business. Um, Still, you know, having slightly influential voice, but we have a CEO and management team that that ultimately run the business day to day. What I would, the advice I give them, is the same advice I give anyone in a smaller business, which is you need to be focused, and you need to be focused, and you need to be the best at the thing that you're good at. Yeah. And I think that we've still got, you know, we're very good at what we do. What, what we do, but I think that there's so much market that we could be hoovering up in the, in the development space that going into a very crowded market. When you call it residential investment, I mean, let's, let's just call it what it is, buy-to-let. Right? Yeah. Buy-to-let market obviously is massive, but also it's ridiculously crowded. And it's, very, it's a very price-sensitive market. So how do you differentiate yourself in, in buy-to-let? Frankly, there's only one real way or two ways, which is price and leverage. We've got no other real levers to pull, in my opinion. You know, On the very fine margins, you could say service. But in development finance, you could be a whole 50 basis points, 100 basis points more expensive than your peers. But if you're, you know, if you're giving deve- development d- developers drawdowns on time, if you're, you know, if you're providing a, an extra degree of service, a layer of service that they, they couldn't have, if you're able to put mezzanine or equity options in front of your in front of your clients. You've got a, you're you are in a much stronger position, and that difference of being a little bit more expensive is because. It, because, as I was saying earlier, it's a, it's a very small piece of the total cost for a developer. And if, if, you're, charge, if you're charging an extra 50 basis points, 100 basis points over 18 months on, across a project, but you've introduced the client to an equity source or a MES source that unlocks a deal for them, that's a tiny price to pay. And so yeah. uh, you know, I think that that's where, that's where the opportunities will lie for a business like Overmore. Yeah. And that's why I say to any, any entrepreneur... Focus on, fo- put all your time and energy into the things that you're good at, or you can be the best at, rather than trying to be an also-man in a, in a big market.
1: And, and just to follow up on that, in terms of the uh, HMO space, if you like, or heavily adapted, um, is, is that something w- which you're also sort of heavily involved with in, in terms of some of your lending products?
2: Yeah, uh, we, we we look at that space, or that sector um, regularly. We, we lend to the sector, um, I suppose we... We're sometimes I suppose we're sometimes uh, guilty of applying too much of a sort of development lender's lens on these things um, but you know we have lent to the sector for us it's very much about we, we'll be quite client driven mm. in in that you know if we're lending against that kind of project or against that kind of product um, and we'll also have an eye on we'll always be looking say at the VP value rather yeah. than the investment value so you know there's what you call it where you would say Talk, talk about heavily adapted HMOs whatever you want to call it. Um, we're probably better in the south where you know VP values the difference between VP value and, uh, and the investment value isn't that great. I think when you start to go further away from uh, further away from London the southeast, and you start to see a, a bigger disparity between investment value and VP value. Um, there are probably better lenders out there for that type of product
1: yeah and there's definitely uh, a bit of an emergence in that market of more sophisticated hMOs which sort of offer a more uh, sort of higher higher specification living uh, if you like so it's going to be interesting how that develops uh, and if if that sort of uh, generates differing yields for, from the remainder of that sector
2: yeah I, I would I would agree with that I think look you're the valuers so you can you know you ultimately be the ones that that drive some of this but that fundamentally consumers you know let's renters are consumers the consumers expect, the consumer expectations are increasing they're getting greater um i think people from that sort of what you what you call generation rent um especially as those renters are starting to get age up as well because they can't get on the housing ladder um you know, say compared to someone of my age, uh, my, my generation I'm only in my early 40s, um, those expectations are going up and I think as a consequence of that, um, they, they will want better quality products and they will be willing to pay mm-hmm. for it.
1: Great. No, thanks, Michael. Uh, and then just lastly, in terms of uh, green mortgages, uh, these are becoming far more popular. Are, are you seeing this I- expand at all into the challenger banks marketplace?
2: Well, I, I can't obviously can't speak as a challenger bank, because thankfully we're not a bank. But uh, notwithstanding that, we, we're in discussions with uh, a couple of new funding lines. Uh, we have been for the last couple of years. one of them um, is incredibly ESG focused. I mean, at the end of the day, we are, as an organisation, uh, we're taking the move into ESG very seriously. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, whether we believe in it, believe in environmental stuff or not, um, it's it's a smart business decision because that's just the direction of travel, and so we haven't at the moment got the ability to offer, say, discounted products um, if someone is able to improve the um, the SG scoring of a pro- of a property or the EPC rating of a property at the moment. But at the same time, there's we also have to be be uh, we have to acknowledge that the EPC rating of a property is going to have a, some material bearing on the end value of it pretty soon as, you, let's say, you won't be able to rent out a property if it falls below a certain threshold. So consequently, you know, just for I suppose, from a, from a credit perspective, that's important to us anyway. But one of the new funding lines that we're working with, one of the things that we had discussed with them was, and we will continue to try and push for that to become reality is that to be able to offer cheaper cost of capital for people who are um, who are improving the energy efficiency of properties, as one example.
0: I'm I'm loving that, Michael. But what, what, what are you looking to do in the coming year with the show?
2: Well, I think the um, I, I think first and foremost it's more of the same, but I think we're we're going to look to to increase production values. So we're going to move to more in-person recordings rather than doing uh, recordings over Teams. Um, so I think we're looking to. You know grow the youtube following um probably do make more effort on uh, online help even more leverage the show better as well uh working with kimberly our new marketing coordinator to, to take advantage of that um but also we just want to expand our expand our reach so that we can um you know get more exposure bigger guests as well maybe some you know more people from outside of the industry, but also some of the bigger names within the industry. So some of the people that we're talking to at the moment, I'm very excited about. Um, so try to get you know people that that are guests on that are going to excite um, a wider audience from within the specialist finance and property sector. Um, but certainly, you know, it's it's. But put it this way, I'm loving I'm loving the experience that we've got at the moment. we 40 shows in, uh, 40 recordings in. Um, not quite the 140 that you're at, but we're nearly there. Uh, we'll we'll we'll, ne- we'll be there in a few years' time. Um, and if we're still doing it four years later, like you have been, um, we'll, it will have been a massive success, uh, and it will have smashed all of the, all of our ambitions. Certainly, I'm. I, I never expected to be making uh, a living or making money from from the podcast, but uh, you know, one of the things that we've done this year, which was. Uh, really exciting. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a, a, an alumni dinner, so we're creating a, a community uh, of, of podcast alumni. Um, and we're looking to grow and expand that as we add more and more um, guests on. So it's a sort of nice way of giving back to our uh, to our guests. Uh, we're also looking at doing as well, maybe it's more of a 2025 ambition is to um, maybe do some sort of half day seminar or conference uh, where Maybe focused within either specialist finance or property, or, you know, it could be just entrepreneurship more generally. Um, and as we continue to build um, a community of guests, but also a community of listeners and viewers, um, bringing them together um, under one roof in person for a, a sort of in person experience, um, that will be, I suppose, complementary to not just the podcast, something that Avermore can benefit from, I hope, but also that more importantly, the the community of of our audience and our and our guests can participate in together, and continue to benefit from.
1: Loving that, keen to follow and see that happen. Thanks, Michael. So I know you're a big sports fan, and um, uh, the Super Bowl at the weekend, the Super Bowl most watched U.S. broadcast since the Apollo moon landing. Uh, phenomenal statistic there, and I think you watched. Uh, Earlier
2: in the week, I I, I did actually uh, I didn't watch it live, thankfully. Uh, so yeah, my, my bags are just that's genetic, I think. <laughs> but under my eyes not from not not still recovering from my lack of sleep uh, from watching the Super Bowl. I watched it on record. Um, had to had the results spoiled for me, but no. Uh, huge event Super Bowl was probably one of the most exciting Super Bowls I've watched for, for a while. Uh, and yeah, those viewing figures, you, you know, you can't knock the power of Taylor Swift and her Swifties, right? Not, it's, not, it's not my brand, not, not something I'd necessarily choose. But uh, yeah, she's a, she's a dream come true for the NFL in terms of her ability to, to draw a big audience.
1: Yeah, the power couple, and uh, just in terms of uh, football, I think you're an Arsenal fan.
2: I am a, a long-suffering Arsenal fan, like, uh, much like Rob, and a uh, season ticket uh, in the in the clock end upper, and um, so yeah, have been season ticket. This is my tenth year as a season ticket holder, and uh, have been. It's not, not been the best ten years, although the last couple have been have been quite fun.
1: Yeah, it was a well great task to charge last last year, Um Arsenal there or thereabouts this season. Um, Are you sort of third at the moment? Do you think you can maybe push the top two?
2: My instinct is we should probably finish above Liverpool. I think we're a better team. We've got a better squad than Liverpool. I think we're a better Mm. team than Liverpool. Um, As the result from a couple of weeks ago proved. But it's a a bit like the Avengers movies. You know, Thanos, that Thanos quote is, I am inevitable. You know, Man City are like Thanos, aren't they? They just have that inevitability about them. Um, That, you know, even with the, Fixture, fixture congestion that they're likely to experience. They've got such a big squad, so much talent um, that I, it's just impossible to look beyond yeah. them.
1: Well, Arsenal, the only blemish on Liverpool's uh, form in the last five matches, the only loss. Uh, obviously, Liverpool sit top of the league. Uh, City uh, just behind, two points behind, but a game in hand. Uh, the only team 100% record in the last five for Man City. Uh, just at the time we got Kevin De Bruyne and Haaland returning. Um, like I said, Arsenal there or thereabouts. Man United still in touching distance of a fourth, just about. Uh, Spurs are also unbeaten the last five. Uh, Coinciding with of Jamie Madison and uh, Richarlison also in form for them. And Just Villa starting to dip off on their form, so we'll see how they uh, make up the sort of uh, fourth, to, fourth to seventh.
2: Yeah, I, I think uh, having having seen Unai Emery at, at work at, as, at, at Arsenal. Um, Ultimately, it's it's not surprising that, that Villa will start to, to sort of end up in around the seventh or eighth mark uh, as, as the season progresses.
1: Yeah, and they're, they're probably the surprise of the season so far in terms of where where they are in the league post-Christmas. But um, also sort of Chelsea lingering at the moment in 10th, Newcastle having a, a fall in their form. I, I,
2: as, I, as I was saying to you earlier, I think that uh, Newcastle's squad is ultimately a little bit too thin. You know, mm-hmm. they've, they've obviously tried to build themselves, you know, in an FFP compliant way. Um, and I think some of their uh, their attempts to, to bolster their squad from loan with loans from the Saudi League um, have come under a lot of scrutiny, and have perhaps dissuaded them from going uh, going fully there. Uh, with with regards to Chelsea, look, they've got they've paid too much money for a lot of players that are probably a little bit mediocre. And I think if you want to be at the top in the Premier League, you need to have a strong squad, a settled squad, um, and um, you know you, you don't want to have. Six players in every position, as Chelsea seem to do. So they don't have much yeah. squad harmony as a consequence of that.
1: Yeah, Man City's first team to win it four times in a row. I,
2: I, I don't want that to happen, but I just, it, you just can't see past it, can you? It just seems too. Right now, it seems, seems inevitable. Um, I, I pray, I pray it, it's, a, it's a red and white win, but you just.
1: Yeah, you just don't know I no more after the trouble in last year <laughs> let's see you never know sport
0: is uh, unpredictable so you never let's see what happens Michael it's been brilliant having you on the show great insight great value add great journey so far loving everything evermore loving the podcast and the community work keep it up uh, super inspiring and super motivating and thanks everyone for uh, listening watching subscribing Supercrime Super Prime UK. Um, Super, super excited for 2024. We're here for you. And we will keep providing you with everything that's happening on the ground and out there within both the property and lending market. Thanks a lot, James. Great Intel as always. And we'll be back with you all soon. Thanks, James. Thanks, Michael.
1: Thank you, both. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, everyone.